Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Good evening. I'm Jane Newman. I'm a professor of comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm one of the trustees of the National Humanities Center. It's also my great pleasure to be your host for this evening's event. I was a fellow myself at the center in 2015 and 16, and I really appreciate this opportunity in being able to highlight some of the amazing work of other scholars from the center. Okay, tonight is the final conversation in the National Humanities Center's series on conflict and resolution. And our guest this evening, we're lucky to have Professor Catherine Cole, Divisional Dean of the Arts and Professor of Dance and English at the University of Washington. Catherine's scholarship is focused on dance and the performing arts in Africa, especially on the important role that performance has played in dealing with the ravages of colonialism. She's the author of three books on these topics, including Performing South Africa's Truth Commission, Stages of Transition, and Ghana's Concert Party Theater. Catherine has also co-edited the book, Africa After Gender, as well as special issues of Theater Survey and TDR, the Drama Review. Her research has been supported by grants from the Freie Universität Berlin, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Fund for US Artists, the ELA Ella Foundation, and the University of California Institute for Research in the Arts, as well as fellowships from the Harvard Theater Collection and the American Association of University Women, and of course, a fellowship from the National Humanities Center as well. Catherine is generously offered to talk with us this evening about her work and about her most recent book, Performance and the Afterlives of Injustice, published last year with the University of Michigan Press. Please join me then in welcoming Professor Catherine Cole. Thank you, Jane Newman, for that gracious introduction. And thank you to the National Humanities Center for inviting me to be part of this series on resolution and conflict. It's a tremendous honor and a chance for me to formally launch my book. The University of Washington, where I currently work, acknowledges the Coast Salish peoples of this land, the land which touches the shared waters of all tribes and bands within the Suquamish, Tulalip, and Muckleshoot nations. The United States, where I live, like South Africa, is a settler colony with a deep and troubling history of white supremacy and racism. I resolve to do my part in addressing that history. I am dedicating my talk tonight to Tejimola Olanian, who was a professor of African studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He passed away in November of 2019, and I had the privilege of studying under him while getting my PhD at Northwestern University. In an article Professor Olanian published in 2015, he wrote that, quote, in contemporary Africa, cultural creativity far outstrips cultural criticism, happily and sadly. 
happily, because the continent is not at least losing out on both creative and critical production. Artists in all media are working prodigiously to shape form and meaning out of their demanding specific context and the intricate ways those contexts interact with the world. Sadly, because the conditions for the training of intellectuals and current critics are far less than adequate, and because an overall healthy development of cultural creativity, the type that continually be uh, breaches accepted boundaries and invents new forms and suggests new meanings, depends on a robust interaction between talented artists and discerning critics, between the creative and the critical imagination. My book, Performance in the Afterlives of Injustice, is an act of cultural criticism that strives to meet the ideal that Tejimola Alanian sets here for being a discerning critic who responds and engages to the cultural creativity of the continent. This virtual book club series frames our topic as conflict and resolution. And I think for many people, the word resolution suggests closure. And that would lead us to thinking about, for instance, how we can dispel rancor or to ask, as the blurb for my talk did, can we dance our cares away? And I want to begin by saying emphatically that I don't think we can dance our cares away, at least not these particular cares. And I don't think we should. In the U.S., we are not going to get closure on slavery and genocide. Likewise, South Africa will likely not get closure on apartheid and colonialism. Such profound and systemic injustices have an afterlife that we must, must learn how to live with and to live with intention, care, purpose, and a commitment to make a world that is better than that past. So rather than thinking of resolution as a solving, as an end of conflict, let us consider the other meaning of resolution. That is a commitment. Resolution, a resolution to sit with these histories of injustice that are much bigger than any of us, much bigger than any one solution. Artists are not policymakers or lawmakers. However, performing artists who make works about unresolved embodied histories in and through living bodies, for instance, dance and live art, which is the subject of the discipline that my book focuses on, may help us all inhabit spaces shot through with noxious remains of the afterlives of injustice in our times. Thus far, this series has considered Roman republicanism, the legal legacy of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era in the US and the larger theme of pragmatist politics and the case for liberal democracy as a way to, as John McGowan said, imagine what American life could be like if we more fully embraced values such as love, forgiveness and generosity that are too often left out of our political discourse. My presentation relocates our discussion in this book series to focus on the global South and specifically South Africa. While also moving from the disciplines of classics, history of law and English, which were the, what, where my predecessors in this series came from, here we are firmly located in the performing arts and dance. And I want to pick up a question that Joy Connolly posed at the start of her talk four weeks ago. And that is how can we go on together as citizens? This is the very question that the artists from South Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo, who I study in this book, are asking. Their answers are not in words, primarily, but mostly through their bodies, through dance. 
My words in the book attempt to engage thoughtfully with them, to dialogue with what I see their bodies saying, to be that discerning critic that, and I hope you buy the book and read my book, but really, I know you're going to want to see these artists. And so I have a call to action straight away. You have a chance to see one of the artists who is the focus of this book, and that is Gregory Makoma, who is a choreographer from Johannesburg. And starting tomorrow, February 25th, online for a whole month, the American Dance Festival is streaming a new collaboration between Gregory Makoma and Mark Bamuthi Joseph, who is African American. The piece is called Untold Secrets of the Heart. Uh, that's Untold Secrets of the Heart. You can Google that. And I'll also post a link at the end of the talk. So to give you a sense of where we're going with this talk, the structure of it, um, part one, I'm going to read you a little bit of the preface, which begins in a pool in California. I know it's unlikely, but the reason for that will become clear. And then I'll shift to an overview of the structure of the book, sort of an opportunity for you to meet the artists who I feature. And then finally, I'll do a little bit deeper dive into Gregory Makoma and show you some video clips and talk a little bit more about him. Okay, so here we are with part one. I dive in, water a bit too warm, Lanes generously wide. Longer than most, yet short by Olympic standards, this pool is graciously appointed. Variegated gray marble tiles grace the deck. Plaster figurines of white women in diaphanous gowns and fat babies in repose line its perimeter. Underwater, one finds an exquisite universe. Brown marble streaked with gold, sunlight undulating and refracting through the water. I see, but I don't hear in this place. It is elemental. Constant motion abuts permanence, water against rock, light against darkness, and then there is me, a fragile human body floating free, a harried academic seeking refuge from a glut of emails, petitioning students, and bureaucratic meetings. meetings. But swimming here is no longer the respite for me that it once was. Human remains under this pool have unsettled things. At the center of this story are body parts, bodies that became objects and humans who did not count as humans, who were not considered worthy of grief in life or in death. This story is about awareness and heedlessness, about a deeply repressed history, about my own university's unresolved connection to a genocide, about the perils of speech acts, including essays, plays, and books that attempt to address a long silence about long denied atrocities. These are the afterlives of injustice. What exactly counts as an intervention when profound injustices such as genocide and slavery have not been widely recognized? Acknowledgement is a complex performative act. Without acknowledgement, there can be no apology. Without apology, there can be no redress. Without any of the above, the above what can a piece of theater or performance or art actually do? Can art wield the toxic surface of, surfeit of this unfinished business without succumbing to its corrosiveness? As Toni Morrison asks, how to enunciate race while depriving it of its lethal cling. 
Even when there has been a formal state acknowledgement, as happened when South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission publicly recognized that apartheid perpetrated gross violations of human rights, legacies of injustice continue today, volatile and unpredictable in their impact, disrupting both life and art. Some experience the afterlives of injustice as social death, Others may careen from insight to sustained amnesia, being woke only momentarily, if at all, before customary obliviousness sets in. Contradiction, says the narrator of Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, is how the world moves, not like an arrow, but a boomerang. The boomerangs of history bear down with little warning. They crack across the head so fast. Some experience the blow as a sudden awakening. The pain may last, but too often the insights are fleeting. And there is an endless repetition of empire, an acting out of old dramas over and over again with nauseating predictability. The gym in which I swim is a memorial to Phoebe Hurst. It was built on the University of California, Berkeley campus in 1927 by her son, William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper tycoon. It was intended to provide a hospitable and welcoming space for women on a college campus that was otherwise a male bastion. Phoebe was a remarkably progressive woman. She sponsored an architectural master plan for the campus, founded and funded the anthropology and archeology span departments, underwrote expeditions to collect art and artifacts throughout the world and endowed scholarships for women long before most universities even admitted them. And she created a museum. This museum, I once told an audience sitting in its gallery, the one we are sitting in today, the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology. The Hearst family's fortune was first made from mining California gold, an industry that came as a boon to some and a catastrophe to others. In California, the word genocide was rarely spoken in my experience in relationship to our state's history. From 1945, just before the discovery of gold, to 1900, the native population had gone from 700,000 to 20,000. From 700,000 to 20,000, less than 3% survived. This decimation was deliberately perpetrated through a governor-endorsed war of extermination. As Alex Alvarez has argued, the case of the natives of California illustrates one of the clearest examples of genocide in North America. Even though I, I had lived half my life in California, I just could not recall many people speaking about the state's genocide. Likewise, in the nine years I worked at the University of California, Berkeley, people generally did not speak about that until recently, about what lay under Phoebe Hearst's pool. What neither I nor most people on campus knew until 2012 was that to swim in Phoebe Hearst's spectacular marble line pool was to swim among above 10,000 Native American human remains. For the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology had at the time more unrepatriated Native American human remains than any U.S. institution besides the Smithsonian. During the busy development of the state of California, many sites excavated for new roads or buildings and they would unearth human remains, often the bones of Native Americans. The Hearst Museum became the place to send them. These accumulated remains were stacked in metal containers under the Hearst pool. Uh, 
there are rows and rows and rows and rows of bodies, a worker at the Hearst Museum told Tony Platt, author of Grave Matters, Excavating California's Buried Past. It's hard for me to go there, but I have to do it when Native groups want to see the remains of their people. It's very depressing, end quote. I dive in, water a bit too warm, lanes generously wide. I try to imagine them. 10,000 is a lot of people. Arlington Cemetery has 400,000 graves that cover 624 acres. That's 641 bodies per acre. How much less than an acre is a swimming pool? The narrator of The Invisible Man was right. Contradiction is how the world moves. He also advises, beware of those who speak of the spiral of history. They are preparing a boomerang. Keep a steel helmet ready, handy. The legacies of colonialism, empire, and apartheid are far too vast and enduring in contemporary South Africa to be seen in the rearview mirror. There is far too much unfinished business to view such histories in retrospect. The artists who tangle with such histories are wise to keep those steel helmets at the ready. When I learned about the human remains under the pool where I loved to swim, I considered whether I should stop swimming there. Would such a boycott have any impact? Would such an act in any way disentangle me from the sordid institutional history of my employer? Was I exposing myself? What was I exposing myself to by swimming regularly among these unsettled remains? And how did those ancestors below experience my blithe aquatic to and fro? I swam first in a state of settler oblivion and later racked by settler angst. Of what consequence was either? In the end, I decided that as long as I worked at that institution, I was in the pool. And even now that I no longer work at that university, I am still in this pool. We all are. I swim another lap, I flip and turn. I push off from the granite and paddle back to the other side, the living, the living. They see a little at a time. They don't hear the living, the living, so many living, living people rolled up their minds, rolled up, flexed, stiff and cold. How is it that in a place of knowledge, so many prefer not to know? While this book begins in America, its central focus is South Africa. That said, its animating questions are equally resonant and relevant in both places. The United States shares with Canada, New Zealand, and Austra Australia and South Africa deep settler status. All are locations of white conquest wrought by violent white rule. Deep settler states vary, each with its own distinctive historical trajectory and racialized practices of dispossession and dehumanization, but they also share commonalities, as historian George M. Fredrickson demonstrated so persuasively in his landmark 1981 study, White Supremacy, a comparative study in American and South African history. And this is a quote from him. More than any other multiracial societies resulting from the expansion of Europe that took place between the 16th century and the 20th, South Africa and the United States have manifested over long periods of time a tendency to push the principle of differentiation by race to its logical outcome, a kind of Herrenvolk society in which people of color, however numerous or acculturated they may be, are treated as permanent aliens or outsiders. 
In California, white conquest was achieved through a state-endorsed war of extermination against Native Americans that was not formally acknowledged until 2019. I begin my book with a story about how I came to discover remains of genocide that were quite literally underneath me. Through this awakening to local afterlives of injustice, I came to see South Africa with new insight. Unresolved histories insert themselves in our times, times, yet their excess and surfeit often surpasses both our comprehension and our ability to do something productive in the face of them, at least in a linear fashion. In such circumstances, the voices, voices and visions of artists, such as those featured in this book, can help us see what otherwise evades perception. Their art also has the capacity to disorder the toxic real and wedge open spaces where ne necessary new fictions can take root, gestate, and become sentient, living, breathing realities in the now. Okay, so that's the end of part one. And now what I am going to do is share my screen. I'll talk you through the outline of this book. So the book begins with Athel Fugard's play, Statement After Unarrest Under the Immorality Act, and explores the relation of performance and the law in apartheid South Africa during, during the early 1970s, a time in between the nonviolent resistance of the 1950s and the escalation of open combat that characterized the wake of the 1976 Soweto uprising. In the 1970s, South African theater artists of all hues had to navigate navigate a gauntlet of ever-escalating apartheid legislation, a cascade of laws that limited their capacity to assemble, to move through space, to fraternize across racial lines, and to express ideas. So the first chapter illuminates how apartheid laws invaded the most intimate domains of the body, of love and sex, and of the psyches and subjectivities of those who loved across racial lines. Just as the play's characters are literally and figuratively undone by an arrest, so too did apartheid's escalating laws disrupt, disort, distort, and complicate theater artists' attempt to mount this play, and indeed any live theater and performance during this era. The next chapter considers several performance works created in the post-apartheid years, including Jay Pother's Body of Evidence, Mamela Nyamza's De-Apart Hate, and Celo Pesa's Bag Beatings. One sees in these performances paralysis and stasis, yet one can also see emergent movements, sometimes inchoate, sometimes trapped in old paradigms and muscle memories, sometimes holding tight to ways of being that isolate and confine. Rediscovering the ordinary is Njabulo Ndabele exhorted artists to do in the early years of South Africa's new democracy, sometimes requires one to set up seats on a sidewalk in a downtown intersection in Johannesburg, as Celo Pesa does, and then through the disruptive potential of insurgent performances that masquerade as the everyday to see what is hiding in plain sight but may have somehow eluded conscious observation. The power of the performances studied here resides in the artist's, artist's capacity to trouble linear framings of time and to forge aesthetics capable of wielding apartheid's toxic remains without succumbing to their corrosiveness. 
The next chapter interrogates notions of the intercultural, which is a charged and fraught topic in South Africa, given the myriad cultures within its borders and the radioactive afterlife of apartheid's rule, which conquered by dividing races and ethnicities. Can the stage be shared? Can South Africa's many cultures and its legacies of racialized injustice be negotiated on contemporary stages? And if so, how? Can the breathtaking heterogeneity of South Africa's cultures, its rich inheritance of movement practices, aesthetics, languages, and people occupy the same stage, literally and metaphorically, in the contemporary political order? This chapter analyzes disparate approaches used by Robin Orlin, I return again to Jay Pother and Brett Bailey. The final chapter considers performances by Faustin Linyakula from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Gregory Makoma from South Africa. These two artists met in Kenya in 1996 and their conversations over the years have led them to parallel artistic explorations and direct collaborations. In both countries, the afterlives of colonial injustice continue to exert a corrosive force in myriad ways today, perhaps no, but perhaps nowhere more ubiquitously and subtly than in the realm of proper nouns. This chapter explores the performativity of names and the performativity of the proscenium stage. While both artists have often had to wrestle with the problematic labels of quote unquote African dance or contemporary African dance, they are both more interested in locating their creative inquiries in the local and the individual rather than the continental. Names, whether one's own name or the name of a city or country, are a way to investigate identity that is at once personal and part of a much larger network of relationships and histories. Is one Zairean or Congolese? Well, it depends on when in history the question is asked. The country's name has changed several times. Likewise, much ink has been spilled on the idea of decolonization, but how does one actually accomplish decolonization? If the question of decolonization is about a reconsideration of what is at the center, Makoma and Linyakula take up the question while literally, while quite literally in the way in which they use and occupy theatrical space what is to be featured center stage. And these are just a few images of a work called Beautiful Me by Gregory Makoma that um, I focus on in the book. But here's the moment where I know you've all been waiting for um, that you would really prefer to see and hear from Gregory. So let's take a moment to do so. These are excerpts from his performance called Exit Exist. My early childhood memories are still very much part of my movement aesthetic because um, I really still draw and without consciously saying I am drawing back from that movement aesthetics and forms, it's it's happening automatically and I think because it's something that has embedded in my body and, and memory, it's something that really you cannot just erase. It's part of you, it becomes part of your culture. Trouble, 
everybody says, no, you must be living the American dream. And I say, you know, um, not, not really, because um, it's, it's not an American dream. For me, it's, it's a South African dream to be able to break barriers during the American tour. It's also about connecting ourselves with the community of black Americans, because primarily there are parallels within our, our histories. Um, there's, there's suffering, there's joy, um, there's also that uncertainty, there's also an identity crisis, um, are the ones that we can be able to, to, to create a discourse and be able to come together and have a discussion that can better inform who we are and, and maybe go away with a, a, a better knowledge of who we are. Oh, the gents under the sun And presently what is happening is that we're trying so much to find comfort within our own discomforts. And it's when we accept that there will be discomforts within our, within our comfort zones, um, the better we are as a society. It's simple to say people of different cultures and traditions can live together. It's a simple ideology and, and it's an ideal that we want to achieve. <laughs> but at the same time, it's a very complex uh, ideal to achieve. Because life is not simple, and history tells us that. I began performance in the afterlives of injustice with an image of me swimming in a pool, at first quite innocently and in time with growing awareness of the afterlives of injustice lying below me, those unsettled Native American human remains stored in boxes under that pool. These hidden but nevertheless present remains testified to a long denied history of California genocide and the epistemological obsessions of my university which saw humans as objects, as the basis of scientific investigation, but chose not to see our state's history of genocide as something to be actively remembered and taught. How could it be that at the world's most prominent public university, so few people on campus knew what resided under Phoebe Hearst pool? One may come to consciousness slowly, seeing a little at a time. As we swim above the afterlives of injustice, how might we intervene? What can a mere performance do, especially in the absence of the necessary actions of acknowledgement, apology, and redress? Performance in the afterlives of injustice illuminates how African performance artists are intervening in the face of such histories, how they are staging embodied performances that navigate the caustic waters with care and precision and with clear-eyed awareness of the corrosive and toxic forces the afterlives of injustice can unleash. Not all attempts to intervene are successful. Some misfire, some fail, some boomerang back back and strike the artist over the head, but still the work compels. These histories are bigger than we are. Things in contemporary South Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo 
and the United States are entangled, and they are likely to remain morally ambiguous, distended, enfolded, and enmeshed for the foreseeable future. This situation does not necessarily imply a nihilistic position. The hope for a better future remains a vibrant expectation and a demand, certainly by the artists featured in this book, but theirs is a quest, a dedication to the ongoing necessary work of otherwise. It requires the ability to dwell in complexity, to endure a lack of resolution, to consider the heterogeneity of cultures without forcing a false oneness, and to inhabit a place where the afterlives of injustice are likely to endure. Artists negotiate these conditions by crafting performance works that often demand a dwelling in the palimpsest that constitutes the contradictions of the present, a resistance to impulses to simply move on from colonialism or apartheid. At the same time, they operate with an insistent and persistent expectation that things should be otherwise than what they are or have been. So that nearly concludes things. I just want to remind you that if you'd like to see more of Gregory Makoma's work, you can do so starting tomorrow evening through the American Dance Festival and the Dance Cleveland are premiering this work called Untold Secrets of the Heart Chamber. Um, it will premiere tomorrow, Thursday, February 25th at 7 p.m and will be streaming for an entire month. So I encourage you to check that out. And finally, I just wanted to close with an image of Professor Tejamula Olanian, my dear teacher, who's guided me in so many important ways. So thank you again, and I look forward to our conversation. Great, Catherine, thank you so much for uh, that uh, talk, and also for particularly for weaving your talk um, into the earlier talks uh, in this series of conflict and, and resolution. That was really a uh, kind of a, a, an artistic move of its own. So thank you, thank you so much. And thank you also for alerting us to uh, Makoma's American Dance Festival, Untold Secrets of the Heart, beginning to stream tomorrow. I think that'll be something that lots of um, people I think can um, <clears throat> follow up on. Your focus on the complexities of conflict and resolution and your excellent point that uh, resolution is not closure or a closing off or a solving or an erasing of the conflict, but rather an issue of, of um, being resolved to live with the afterlives and to sit with histories of injustice um, is a, a really remarkable message, I think, for, for us today. We're, of course, living in the midst of the afterlives of the injustice of unequal, uh, unequal um, access to healthcare, for example. But we're also witnessing, as you suggest, how people who dwell with these kinds of injustices um, kind of deliberately and honestly, such as, for example, gerrymandering and the restriction of the franchise, how people are undertaking to create new realities um, via mass voter registration uh, for projects, for example. But uh, as you say, and I think this is incredibly the, the takeaway from your point, we have to first acknowledge that these injustices occurred and they, they continue to infect the body politic and the movement of our, our each of our individual citizens' bodies, like the movement of your dancers um, are, are places to begin or sites of memory and, and what I would call creative redress. We just all have to get moving uh, to paraphrase uh, former First Lady uh, Michelle Obama. Uh, and so that's what you sort of are encouraging us to do. Um, I'm going to be checking the um, uh, 
uh, chat to see questions coming from our audience. But I wanted to just start with one particular uh, question that I think may uh, unpack a little bit of, of your example, particularly the South African example. And it will, it's to start with the question of movement. Um, could you share with us and with our audience how you read the literal movements of the dance as living with the history of the injustice of apartheid? Um, your account of the afterlives of the Native American genocide um, in the preface to the book that you read for us uh, tracks beautifully the movement of your body through the watery space of the Hearst Pool on the Berkeley campus. And your description made the way that the injustice of the past in that case are something we literally live with uh, in embodied form. We all swim in the pool of that genocide, as you so beautifully uh, write. Could you perhaps return us to the story of the Makoma piece, the Exit Exist, uh, that was the clip that you showed us, and, and do a close reading for us of some of the details of that clip that we, as we watched it. Uh, mm. Take us through the choreography, the gestures, the costuming, the lighting, the props, the soundtrack. What are the, where is the subterranean presence and the legacy of South African apartheid uh, explored? Mm. In this, um, in this thing, where, where does the deeply repressed history of apartheid become visible in that in the movements? Um, do we sit with it as the audience? Does Makoma sit with it in the, as the performer? How does performance, uh, as you say so beautifully, disorder the toxic reel of the past of apartheid? So, so if you could explore a little bit more, sort of in detail for mm -hmm. us, like need it for us, I think that'd be lovely. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Jane. Um, that's such an excellent question. And this, um, I ended up showing Exit Exists because I thought that um, video clip was so succinct for this context. But I don't, I don't study this particular um, performance in the book, so I'm really happy for this invitation to talk a little bit more about it here. And um, and and it is a performance that was seen widely in South Africa, and of course, it it plays differently there. Um, our our competence to understand it and understand the richness of it is so situational, uh, and yet, sort of tracking the reception of this in different cities and uh, parts of South Africa and in the U.S. and um, in London, it 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 I think it resonates for people no matter where they they enter in. But just to situate it a little bit more from a specifically South African point of view, um, it is a piece that's framing the necessity of um, excavating history and not just excavating, but locating oneself in that history. And um, one of the things that's so important that Gregory Makoma is doing here, um, everybody in South Africa understands that the legacy of apartheid remains today in structures, in continued racial violence, in continued um, inequality. Um, and yet apartheid was 1948 to 1994 and racialized injustice in South Africa goes way further back in time. So he's relocating it back to kind of more of a, a primary trauma and that is land dispossession of, um, and specifically it's a story of the Amakosa people and his ancestor, Chief Makoma, who uh, was a leader in the Eastern Cape from 1798 to 1873. And he was quite a resistant force against colonial land, land grabs. It's also a piece that meditates a lot on the importance of cattle and land. Um, uh, and there's grain, there's lots of images of grain and cattle in the piece. In the end, um, Chief Makoma's um, resistance ended up um, getting him sent off to prison 
for two life sentences, actually. And he was sent off to Robben Island. So this was back in the 19th century. We know, of course, Robben Island today, we think about it in relationship to Nelson Mandela, who we know spent 27 years there. Um, but um, Gregory's uh, ancestors spent um, uh, over spent 16 years there and died there. And so, you know, it's that wider frame um, um, of looking looking more deeply at, um, at, at, at the afterlives of injustice further back in time and the extent to which the body itself is an archive. So his ancestor is alive in him today in his own DNA. So the body the body is central to this. So you asked a bit more about the kind of theatrics of it and the staging of it. And just to quickly tell you of the structure of the piece, it begins with him wearing that suit and we only see him from behind and it's a silver iridescent suit. It's mercurial. He's he moves so fast, you almost can't see his limbs. Um, and um, the kind of liquidity you saw of that image is very characteristic of Gregory's uh, movement vocabulary. And you'll even see vestiges of um, Michael Jackson in there. Michael Jackson was a huge influence on him because um, when Michael Jackson's videos came to South Africa before the end of apartheid, it was the first time he'd ever seen a positive image of a black person on television. Then the piece shifts over into kind of into history and those singers represent ancestors. And in much of Africa, ancestors aren't in the past. They're in a sort of a parallel universe of the now. We don't see them, they're not sentient, but they are present and can impact the life of the now. So there's a kind of going to the ancestors, um, giving um, respect to the ancestors, giving grain to the ancestors and getting, um, getting insight and energy from the ancestors. His movement in that section sort of explores a time of greater harmoniousness with the land and with cattle and then a severing of that. Um, so it's it's through the body, sort of telling the story of dispossession, um, and uh, and ultimately um, is a sort of ritual of um, returning. And and Gregory didn't know much about his ancestor when he began this piece. It took a whole sort of um, even a, even a ritual of his own to go much deeper into the roots of who he is. And that is part of the legacy of the afterlives of injustice to be severed from one's own history and one's own lineage to sort of recover that. Um, and uh, so then at the end of the piece, there is that moment that we saw in the clip um, where he's being pulled on that cloth. And that actually is sort of symbolizing his ancestor, Chief Makoma, being taken off to Robben Island. But that's not the end of the piece. He is the one who exits in the piece, but Gregory exists. Um, and he comes out of that sort of almost ritual of putting the oil all over him and sort of inhabiting this time with the ancestors. He comes out of that to put back on the suit of today, the suit of now, and rather than have his back to us, the audience, as he did in the whole first section, he's now facing us. And his movement vocabulary becomes much more of a blending of uh, more contemporary modern um, uh, dance movements with traditional dance movements. And that's something that's also kind of a signature of um, his choreography. So um, I hopefully begun to suggest, I think, the ways in which this piece helps us dwell in this history 
And I think in particular, the music of it um, is irresistible. That is something that critics, wherever it's done, talk about. Um, for South Africa, the primary instrument is the voice. In West Africa, it's the drum. In South Africa, it's the voice. And that choir is tapping into a kind of deeper vocal acapella singing tradition that people in the U.S. might know through Ladysmith Black Bombazo. It's a form called Isikatamiya. Uh, and just the kind of range of the thinner high notes with the deep, deep, deep bass and the kind of amazing vessel that it gives us and a vessel of joy and a vessel of sorrow and a vessel of grief um, for us to be together in that sonic space and at the same time seeing the visual embodiment um, of, of Gregory and also to sit with the discomfort, that long pause um, where he's just with us and looking at us. And I saw this in um, South Africa at Makanda, in the, which is the area where his people come from. And I also saw it at the Red Cat in Los Angeles. Uh, so very, very different contexts. And, um, but I think in both contexts, there's a kind of visceral intuitive understanding of what it means, the power of collective witness, um, uh, and to be to be in the space that he holds for us in this solo piece that lasts an hour. That's 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 lovely, Catherine. Thank you. That that really helps kind of set literally set the stage. Um, and thank you so much for for telling us about the two places that you saw it. Right, because one of our questioners, one of our attendees, asks um, how the, the uh, you could you talk a little bit about the tension and the catharsis in these performances and the way that audiences respond. And if you could sort of say a little bit about the differences between those the audience kind of response, because we we have a different. Um, you know, we come at it with a different set of expectations of, of this and a different understanding actually of what the acapella voices mean, what the mm -hmm. silences mean, what the ancestors mean and so on. So yeah. how do the audiences respond? Well, I really remember seeing this at the uh, National Arts Festival. That was the first time I saw it in, in Makanda and it was a predominantly black audience. And um, as is true, South Africa, black audiences are pretty vocal during, during the performance. Uh, it was back in 2013, uh, so I don't remember a lot of the details, but, um, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I didn't write about it was I felt that this particular piece demanded um, a depth of expertise on Gosa culture that I don't have. Um, so I actually... Um, you know, looking at kind of, I was looking at what's been written about it since 2013. And there are some really nice pieces from South Africa that um, locate it very deeply in the history. But I feel there's a whole cultural element that at least as of yet, I haven't seen someone speak to. Um, but I, 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 you, I can really tell the resonance that that the work has for someone who has that depth of expertise of what he's actually dealing with. Um, in terms of, um, you know, seeing it in Los Angeles, um, I, I, you know, as Gregory says in that clip, there are so many interesting parallels between South Africa and the U.S. around our histories of race. Um, there's differences, you know, I think uh -huh. if sort of the original sin of 
um, or the, of, of South Africa is, is, is land dispossession. Um, for, for us, for black culture here, it's the middle passage and slavery. And those are very different experiences. So they're, they're parallel, they're not one in the same. They're, these are two countries that have a lot of interesting parallels. And I think one of the things that's drawn me to this subject is, um, it gives you a lot of insight into, it gives me a lot of insight into my own culture to kind of look at South Africa and, and be looking back. And I feel the core of what Gregory is asking us to do is exactly what we need to be doing in the US. And so I'm, I'm so excited that he's got this collaboration coming forward with Mark Bamuthi Joseph, um, who is African-American. Um, more and more, uh, I think Gregory's work is engaging in that sort of diaspora conversation. Uh, that's that's really fascinating. Thank you. To, that that was a, another question that has has come up. You you you've it's a lovely place to end our book club with is this turn to the global south. Um, and and I thank you so much for that. But as you say, and as you cite uh, just now, Makoma saying is that there are these, you know, this notion of uh, the need to address conflict and resolution is the resolution isn't just a foreign one, right? You know, I mean, it's in this in this country as well. Um, and the, the US, as you say, lives as much uh, uh, with its, uh, the afterlives of the injustice of, of colonial, uh, the colonial settler, colonial state as South Africa does. You actually wrote an earlier book on, on South Africa's um, Legendary Truth and Reconciliation Commission of the 1990s. And could you talk a little bit about, about uh, the performances at those hearings, because um, they, they were also, you know, performances mm -hmm. different, obviously, than the performances you're talking about today. And perhaps also comment, if you would like to go there, uh, with whether we need such a commission in the U.S. today to deal with the injustices uh, uh, to Native Americans and, and, and uh, mm. slavery, so to discuss reparations and so on, it's a big topic, right? D did the performances of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission work not to resolve conflict, but to allow people to recognize it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what about those amnesties that it awarded? Mm -hmm. Those were very controversial mm -hmm. because that means you don't remember or dwell dwell in the afterlives and the presence of those memories. Mm -hmm. you th what is the relationship of your dancers and their 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 work to, were they working to counter some, what, what some people might call the failings of the Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Commission? Mm -hmm. So I know that's a lot of questions in there, but if you could just sort of a, a, a talk about that, the performances of that, of that uh, more legalistic kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was an example of what's called transitional justice that um, South Africa set up. Um, it, it started, well, they had their first democratic um, elections in 1994 and this commission started its work in um, 1996. And um, there'd been uh, commissions like this elsewhere in the world. There'd been, I think, 16 before South Africa's, but South Africa's was the first truth commission to really embrace being in the public eye. Um, so it, um, it held live hearings kind of moving around the country and people could come and be present in person um, to hear people give testimony. It was broadcast on the radio. So people were listening in and then there were it, initially there was live um, television coverage and over time that became sort of a digest. So it was a very, it was a, it was a media event for the whole country that was kind of divided into different um, committees. So there were human rights violation committee hearings where 
uh, as someone who uh, felt they were a victim of gross violations of human rights could come forward to tell their story. And they were given sort of 30 minutes to do so. And it's very different from a court of law where a witness is sort of has to be prompted and guided by an attorney. Here, um, someone who's a victim or maybe the family of someone who died, they can tell their story. So there was a truth telling and a storytelling um, that was happening in a public space. And then there were am amnesty hearings. And so um, someone who had committed gross violations of human rights um, if they came forward seeking amnesty and gave full disclosure and showed that their actions were politically motivated, there was the possibility that they could be granted amnesty. So that was the structure, structure of it. And for someone like me or why I ended up writing a book on it, I was really intrigued by the embrace of being in the public, um, being in the public eye. And I knew that that was changing the experience um, for everyone involved, for the witnesses, for the commission, for the larger public, because because it had this performative element. Um, uh, so in the world at large, South Africa's Truth Commission has come to be seen as uh, in a very positive light. And many Truth Commissions since then have modeled themselves on South Africa. Within the country at the time, there was a lot of ambivalence there that only grew with time. And that's for a number of reasons. One, I think it privatized or it individualized something that is systemic. Apartheid was systemic. And this, like you came forward as an individual and said, you know, um, I'm a victim or people individually came forward to say they were a per perpetrator. So it was very hard to bring into focus structure and the right and and um, I think there is a way in which we just want closure. It's exactly what Gregory said in that clip. We want to be comfortable and these truths are uncomfortable. And so there was a way in which it did bring catharsis that some people grabbed as closure. There were recommendations for reparation, uh, much of which was not acted on by the state. Amnesty only means something if once the window and amnesty closes, cases are brought forward. They were very, very limited. So in a way, there was a lot of de facto amnesty that didn't have to go through the Truth Commission at all. Um, is that a failure of the commission? I think what I've often felt is, you know, I, I think rather it's a sort of a larger failure of the state because the commission's, you know, its, its authority was, was limited. At the same time, so you ask the question, do we need such a commission in the US? We've had one example with the Greensboro um, massacre. So that's a very, very localized event. Um, and actually the um, brother of the president of my university, uh, her brother died in that. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's very interesting to have something that's that localized. It's much harder with say genocide or slavery, it went, it just so many people over so much time. I think the larger, one, one person said of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa that it narrowed the range of permissible lies. And I do think there's value in that, that, that I mean, we have to begin with acknowledgement. We have to move out of denial. Um, so that was an accomplishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It published a multi-volume book, a uh, multi-volume um, text at the end that really did document patterns of violence. And um, so that becomes undeniable. In the US, we have not dealt with our atrocities. Um, 
to the extent that I think South Africa ha has, however imperfect, however inco incomplete. And we've got to find ways to lean into this history, whether that's by truth commissions, um, whether it's by other forms of um, redress. Uh, I don't think there's any one way, but there's absolutely no question that there's there's work ahead of us. And um, I think I think these artists give us some wisdom in how to go about it. Yeah, thank you very much. We we have time for for one one or two more questions, but that you you give a great uh, a jumping off point um, for for another question is uh, when you said your uh, your artists give us a, a sort of a way into just to thinking this anew. Why why did you focus on dance on the dance? I mean, mm -hmm. there there all sorts of other kinds of performance uh, installation art. One might even say that some of these dances were performance art, like being staged at a intersection in a city right you know or, mm -hmm. or, or something like that so why why does the the dance do the work for you uh that you would have it do for us yeah thanks so much for that question and my training is in theater so dance is not a comfort zone for me this whole book started when i was invited to kind of be a scholar interlocutor with gregory mcboma at ucla and i was given the video and i just was um, so struggling with how do you find words for dance? And, and yet um, it, and I sort of had a breakthrough in the midst of it. Many people know South African performing arts because of theater. Theater under apartheid, um, they really formed a new way of making theater. It's called the workshop method of devised work collaboration. And Athel Fugard, John Connie, Winston and Shona, plays like Siswe Bonzi is Dead that came to the US. They really were central to people becoming aware of apartheid and mobilizing around the um, boycotting South Africa and so forth. Uh, but I think in the post-apartheid years, um, dance had sort of been submerged or so thoroughly segregated under apartheid that it really had to reinvent itself in a new way in the post-apartheid years. And I think that gave it an agility in speaking to the now and not um, kind of succumbing to nostalgia. And I also think there's something really powerful about the body in South Africa because um, the way apartheid of people affected people was so much about the body, but where bodies can move, who could sleep with who, where, uh, um, where people could live. So it, it, the bodies, and then on top of that, that South Africa has 11 official languages. So language-based arts just um, don't have the capacity, I think, that more body-based arts do. And the final thing, because you also mentioned visual art or literature, I think there is something very potent about people assembling together in the same room at the same time. <laughs> that, that question of how do we be together um, that was kind of a framing question for this whole series. We, um, the theater and a, you know, coming together in a performing arts space is part of how we constitute who we are as a citizen, citizenry. So I think there's just incredible potency in the live performing arts. Oh, that's a that's a really really lovely way to <clears throat> to 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 think about also our virtual book club <laughs> as as a as an attempt to, to to sort of create a community in that way. One one final question. You have thirty seconds. Um, we we've had an observation in the in the chat that your own style and approach is quite lyrical. 
um, <clears throat> when you when you write? Um, and how do you square that and the sort of obvious emotion and urgency that you bring to these issues, right, with a kind of an academic treatment of them? Um, and and how do, are these synergistic in a way? Are you trying to intervene in the way people, scholars talk uh, about their work for the public? How, how do you see that? Well, I, I thank you for that. I'll, t I'll take it as a compliment. Um, it was um, meant as a compliment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, I had a sort of breakthrough as a writer, just trying to write about dance. I like, I'm such a word-based person. That was a huge struggle. Um, and so I really sort of dialogued with Gregory's expression in his, in his body. And it was a breakthrough in style for me. I had to find a new way of writing that I felt would do it justice. Um, and I think that calling that Tejimola Onlanian set as well of like, how do you, how can we be discerning critics that really have a symbiotic relationship um, with the artists we write about and not an extractive one where I'm saying this is what it means. Um, I think critics, it, the, the relationship of critics and artists can be very colonial, very problematic. So I'm trying to find a new way. That's, that's, that, that's lovely. Um, the, the, the challenge that um, remains for all of us, I think, and this comes out in a, in a, a question on the chat is, is there actually the political will right now to try to invent these new forms, right, of inter interacting with the afterlives of injustice, uh, or are we really just going to get kind of um, dragged down into the past of them, right, right through engaging with them? And I'm, there, I don't, I'm not asking you for an answer, but it is the challenge of the moment, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, so I think it's a very important, a very important question. This is hard. It's hard work. It's uncomfortable. And I think what, like Gregory's work in particular, it's, it's incredibly beautiful and soothing and healing. Um, so I think artists as sort of guides and leaders can help us, can help us do this work and not have it. Um, and we're still going to be uncomfortable. It's still going to be hard. Uh, but um, I think you, you, we might want to hear more of that music. <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine. This was really a, a fitting rounding out to our uh, engagement with some of the harder issues that we're all facing and that this, uh, that this series was really designed to address. So thank you so much for being the culminating uh, point in it. Um, thanks to everyone also who, who attended this evening's uh, conversation. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for coming and please stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.